Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Welcome to Memphis Metropolis, everybody. I'm the host, Emily Trenum, and this week, I'm pleased to welcome to the show Anna McQuiston Holtzclaw from Urban Land Institute, the Memphis chapter. She's the director, and then Alex Willis, who is with Comcap Partners, but is on the board of Urban Land Institute as well. And we're going to be talking about um, a new equitable recent a recent equitable development challenge they launched for you aligned for the local community so welcome you guys hi how are you good thanks for being here so let's start talking about what urban land institute is who it is i know it's a national organization i just like the audience to know more a little more about it anna um, you want to start off yeah sure i'll take that one um the Urban Land Institute, as you mentioned, is a national organization. They have what they call district councils actually all over the world. The majority of them are in the United States. Um, here in Memphis, we have been operating our council since 2007. And the organization, I think what makes it really unique is that it's multidisciplinary. So it serves the real estate industry. But we like to say that if you come look within the ULI membership that you could have find any role you needed in a real estate project, whether it was the developer, the banker, the lawyer, the architect, the engineer, the community development person, that sort of all of those different um, aspects are represented. So that brings a very holistic aspect to our conversations and our programs where you're really hearing different perspectives all the time, which I think is what makes it really unique and allows it to serve the real real estate industry so well. And we have about 220-ish members here um, locally that participate in programs throughout the year. And we like to say that our true goal is to keep the real estate IQ high for existing professionals in the community about best practices and innovative trends in city building. And what's Region Smart? That's part of ULI or an affiliate of it. Tell us about that. I would call it an affiliate of it. Um, about two years ago, we sort of recognized that we were getting into some programs and doing some things in the community that the model of the membership association that the national organization runs um, just became a little restrictive in how we wanted to operate. And, um, and so we started Region Smart, which is a locally based nonprofit organization. Um, one could not exist without the other. They are very integrated. I, um, I talk, whenever I say ULI, I also mean Region Smart and vice versa. But Region Smart really does three things. It works with ULI to help keep that uh, real estate IQ um, high. It um, runs a new program called the Emerging Developers Program, which is about five different curriculums that we run for real estate entrepreneurs who are interested in taking on small-scale development projects and getting them done. And then the third thing we do is we run the Mid-South Mayor's Council, which is made up of elected officials from the tri-state area. And we like to say that our sort of 
dream goal for that organization is that if we can align the existing real estate professionals, emerging developers, and elected officials around the same best practices in land use and city building, that we can do some pretty amazing things for the Mid-South. So Region Smart is not part of a national network in the same way Urban Land Institute is. No, it is an entirely independent, standalone 501c3 that is based here in Memphis. So let's talk about the... Um, Let's talk about the Equitable Development Challenge. I had an opportunity to participate in this, found it really rewarding. Um, and what was the, I mean, obviously we're living in a moment and I know the real estate industry has you know, confronted some issues over the years around diversity and inclusion, but what, what um, locally sort of prompted the introduction of the challenge now? And Alex, do you wanna, I know you were, very involved in spearheading that. Do you want to address that? Well, obviously, as you just mentioned, locally, there's been a lot of conversation about diversity and equity and equitable development across um, our city. And that continues to be a big conversation. But I think for this particular challenge, it was the national awakening that happened after the murder of George Floyd and the um, how so many people began to reach out and speak out and um, write statements and start campaigns and really unite on this issue across the country. And as we um, were meeting, um, we discussed it and felt that we had a place and an opportunity to really use this moment to spearhead this in Memphis on a local level and think about how we could do that in a way that was specific to Memphis, but also gave people the resources to really tackle this issue on lots of different levels. And that was the, the immediate genesis. And I think Anna had seen a similar challenge done by another group. Um, it wasn't the same content, of course, but she had just seen the concept. So as we were thinking of ways to tackle this, um, particularly in this moment when we're all socially distant and cannot be together, we wanted to think of ways that we could um, be, provide resources to our network in the greater Memphis community because you did not have to be a member of ULI to participate in the challenge, which was a really great part about it. So one of the things I liked about it is it kind of stopped, started from sort of a higher level, um, I want to say theoretical, but um, a more abstract level, global, and then drilled down over the period of four weeks to really talk about Memphis and the real estate industry. So will one of you just sort of say what those weeks were and the different um, the different discussion points that each one of them was based around? I'll let Anna take that one because I know she has official <laughs> documentation. <laughs> right. She's got the notes. Um, um, yeah. So Yes, we. it was a four-week challenge. Um, it was actually a 21-day challenge, but there was actually a fourth week of, of what we did. And um, I will jump on one of the things that when we were talking with Alex and the other people who were sort of spearheading this effort, action was something that was really important to us and not just having sort of a passive, not that that's not important to go do the reading and the education and stuff, but we really wanted to make sure there was some action from it. So the first week, as you mentioned, we really sort of, it was a sort of get to know myself and where am I? And there, so there were a lot of articles that would apply to anyone in any situation when thinking about any sort of um, racial issues. We uh, articles about bias and wealth gap and just sort of education and understanding some parameter of what the issue, um, how and how it impacts everybody. 
because Anna and I talked a lot about this in particular. And one of I think one of the reasons we decided that this was a great starting point is we wanted to acknowledge that not everybody was coming from the same place as on how to confront the issues that were happening in our country. And we wanted to not assume that everyone fully understood what was happening, even though for some people it was very clear and some people maybe it wasn't, and provide people an opportunity to do some self-reflection where they could really read and learn and, and apply things to their lives directly that could hopefully help them be more empathetic as they went through the rest of the programming. That makes sense to me because I know that I've enjoyed being part of ULI over the years, but there's definitely, I imagine that people did come at it from different levels because there's definitely some old school real estate developer types who were involved in ULI. And then there's the, you know, the young ULI. And I'm sure people had different levels of awareness and education about these issues. Absolutely. And I think that part of the what we did with that too, Emily, was that's why we also um, gave more choices than we were, you know, quote, requiring. You know, we sort of encouraged people to do one thing a day, but we would give you a list that week of 10 or 12 things and say, pick the seven that are relevant to you. So it really allowed people to say, this is where I am. Um, and I think part of what's important in this work too is, acknowledging that we're not in the same place and some people aren't as comfortable being public about where they are. And so that was one of the silver linings of this, you know, pandemic and doing it virtually is I think it allowed people to do some of this work without having to be public about admitting they don't know something yet um, and giving them some tools to perhaps answer some of those questions for themselves. Oh, so continue on about the, about the, the different stages. Sure. So that was week one. Um, week two, we talked about the real estate industry and the role that it has played. And those articles were, and uh, we we also sent a variety of, we would send articles, we would send videos, we would send blogs to listen to, books to listen to, um, also, or books to read, all sorts of different mediums um, that people could get this information as well. And so that week really focused on big picture, national stories, the historical role that the real estate industry has played in perpetuating the inequities um, that we see in so many different places in our country and our communities. Um, and then what the third week did was really drilled down into that and made it very, it was entirely Memphis centric. So we had everything from, you know, a um, editorials that were written by members to um, videos that had been done about things here in Memphis and food insecurities. We featured a chapter of the videos that, um, and the name just went out, out of my head. Um, in the absence. Thank you, in the absence. And, um, and then the real culmination of this happened in week three that we, we again said, pick seven of these things, but we encourage you to do these two. And the two that we encouraged everyone to do was one was to spend some time really studying the redlining maps of Memphis and understanding where they lived on that map and where the line started crossing. And then the second thing we encouraged them to do was to get in their car, on their bike, take their leg, you know, whatever it was, and go walk some of those boundaries and those neighborhoods that were different than the neighborhoods that they might spend the majority of their time in or live in and really under and observe firsthand how those redlining practices are still impacting our community today. I think that's really valuable because you know I spend a lot of time in 
you know, low and moderate income neighborhoods, and probably both of you do as well. But that's just that's not the the Memphis experience, um, certainly from my perspective. And part of it's the way our transportation system is, you know, you drive it up and down Poplar Avenue and just seeing what's on these, or you're on the loop going around and round and you're not getting off at any of the exits uh, in the neighborhoods you don't go to. I feel like some of our neighborhoods are just not as visible as others. And so I think that probably was a real learning for some people, even in the real estate industry. So, so that was the, that was not the culmination. There was one more week, right? right? Yeah. So um, one of the other things that we did throughout these weeks was we had happy hour and coffee hour discussions that people could come to. So the the email would go out on a Friday. And so you'd have seven days to complete your work. And then Thursday afternoon and Friday morning, we had discussion group opportunities for people to come and talk about what they were learning and ask questions and give a forum for that. And that was throughout the first three weeks. And then on week four, what we did was had an hour and a half session and just said, come to it and tell us not just what you learned, but what you think we can do about it and what's next and how can ULI and or Region Smart sort of play a role in the community in furthering this, um, these learnings and the changes we all know need to happen. And what did, what did, people conclude? What is the role of ULI and the local real estate industry in fostering this change that we want to see? Yeah, that's a great question. We don't have the answer yet to the big thing. It's a long long discussion. It's a huge discussion. What I do know is that, you know, a hundred percent of my board said there is nothing more important that we can do than further this discussion and um, try to uncover and support the solutions to ending the systemic racism and inequities that have been perpetuated by our industry. Now, how we do that, are there are a lot of different things. Alex, why don't you talk a little bit about the um, Building a City We Can All right. Afford series? And- well, um, we did talk a lot about just the experience. And obviously, we had a lot of great feedback about the experience before I get to the series. And I think that... <laughs> just like in anything, when you ta- try to tackle these issues that are just so just mammoth issues, you are left with really more questions than answers. And just what can I do? How can I do? I don't know where to start. So we had a lot of conversations about little steps people could take. And a lot of it was about um, providing people opportunities, um, being more inclusive, being more intentional about the people that you work with or providing opportunities for people um, and thinking about you know, when you go into your office, when you look around, are you really trying to find talent that is diverse and different than what you currently have in your in your building? And I think that is um, something that a lot of people thought more about. And again, a lot of it is figuring out where where am I missing a step? Like some people try to reach out and try to be more diverse in their hiring practices, but obviously sometimes they feel that they cannot find the candidate. And so there's a lot of opportunities, but there's still some some gaps for people to figure out how to fill. And I think those those are some immediate conversations that I know a lot of um, people on our board were having, as well as other members of ULI. And then the other big piece of that too is just giving, um, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit, but emerging emerging and up and coming developers opportunities as well to, to diversify the playing field. And that's something that I know ULI is committed to. 
Well, I think that um, in our side of um, the industry, I know one of the challenges that we often come across, particularly in a market like Memphis, is just um, the level of subsidy um, low-income populations need in order to have a quality home is significant um, based on the wages that they're receiving currently. And a lot of that subsidy has to come from the public sector. I mean, there aren't, if as a private developer, there isn't a lot of incentive for you to create um, a quality, a high quality, affordable development when there's going to be a significant gap in what a person in that community can afford to actually pay and what you need to be able to develop the property. So I know there's been a lot of conversations about how um, our city and county can invest more in um, housing and affordable housing options for the greater community. And I think that's something that we're just going to have to keep advocating for. And um, I'm encouraged by the conversations that we're having and hope to see a lot of that in the upcoming years. Well, and if real estate values in some neighborhoods continue to go up, I mean, the subsidy dollars don't necessarily go up. So presumably we could be in the situation where we're able to subsidize even fewer units with the same amount of dollars. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM, and I'm talking to Anna McQuiston-Holtzclaw and Alex Willis about Urban Land Institute's Equitable Development Challenge. So Alex, that's a great segue into some of the ways that ULI is currently working in the space. You mentioned um, you mentioned programs for emerging developers. Either one of you, what are some of the things that ULI's been doing um, along the way in, in this area? Well, I'll, um, again, let Anna provide the specifics. But I will say, as we mentioned before, um, after we wrapped up the 21-day challenge, we were thinking about kind of the action and how can we spearhead this and build on this momentum. Um, we decided that there was a lot of opportunities just to focus more on Memphis, of course, in our local local impact and how we can make sure that we have a more equitable city or be a part of part in making sure that we have an equitable city. And that's where the Building a City We All Can Afford series kind of came out of. And that series um, was kicked off with us taking a look of kind of the lay of the land and understanding what our city um, is challenged with today as far as just land mass and the economics of the populations that live in the city. And that was, I believe, led by Doug McGowan, correct, Anna? Yes. And then we've since then taken gotten um, speakers from across the country who are practitioners um, in their cities and um, communities to help share best practices with us about things that they're doing that hopefully we can learn from and adapt for the Memphis market. And then, of course, as I mentioned before, um, ULI has been committed to diversity um, and we've had programming established for a few years now to help up and coming minority developers have opportunities to learn how to refine their skills as well as to network with more established developers and practitioners and hopefully help them even get projects off the ground. And I know Anna has some more details about all that. We, um, yeah, I mean, just like Alex said, I mean, that, you know, the building a city we can all afford program was some programming that came directly out of uh, feedback we got from the equitable challenge. We um, are in the midst of that, so we haven't wrapped that series up yet. And then really just, again, focusing all of our work into 
you know, identifying ways to create this ecosystem that is truly representative of our community and is helping break down some of the challenges and hurdles that have existed for women and people of color to get into our industry for years. I'll tell you anecdotally, we did um, a, uh, not long ago, we did a speed networking session where we brought in a lot of our young members and paired them up with seasoned members and, you know, did eight minutes with, you know, you had a conversation with someone and these very quick conversations. And one of the things by doing it on Zoom, you know, everybody would come out of the rooms and the whole the whole crew would be together there for a couple of minutes while we were trying to rearrange breakout rooms and get everybody assigned to the next mentor. And during that time, it was, you know, all they were having these group conversations and several of the mentors hadn't seen each other in a while and were talking about all of this. And later we were reflecting on how that was such a great example of how relational the real estate industry is. And so, and how much, how important it is to do things like this, you know, speed mentoring and that sort of thing, because it's those figuring out how to develop those relationships so that everybody coming through our emerging developers program becomes a ULI member and is bumping shoulders with, you know, the people that are doing Union Row and uh, South City and all these bigger, larger projects in our community so they can learn from them and understand who their resources are for information, advice, um, mentorship, all that sort of thing. And just that relational um aspect of it is so critically important. And so we're trying to start to do a lot of things that um, creates opportunities to um, allow those relationships to happen as well. Well, this might be a little out of ULI's portfolio and maybe not, but what are there policy changes you think we need locally to make our city develop more equitably? Maybe that we've seen in other places. I mean, I'm familiar with, mm-hmm. of course, they've, there's, you know, threats recently to um, sort of dismantle or dilute the Community Reinvestment Act, the national one, for sure, if that happened, there'd be less incentives for banks to do lending in low-income communities. But I don't know if there were others that um, that came to mind or programs that you, some of these best practices from other cities, is there anything you can think of that you'd like to see deployed locally that you think would help? I, you know, yesterday the um, HCD had their housing summit and one of the speakers was saying, and I'll, I'll get the percentages wrong, but, you know, they were saying in the last 20 years that the cost of building homes has increased exponentially while our average minimum, while our minimum wage and our average um, household income has not at all. And so, I mean, that statistic alone, it costs just as much to pay, you know, the drywall guy, you know, to build an affordable um, house as it does to build, you know, a mansion that someone's going to pay $2 million for. And so, you know, it, it just becomes harder and harder as these construction costs go up to deliver the quality homes that we know all of our citizens deserve and that we want them to have. Yeah, I agree. Um, and the summit yesterday was fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. Just wanted to acknowledge yeah. that. And I, um, and I do remember another comment that was made, which was specific to um, the black wealth gap and how, I mean, it's a lot of it is attributed to wages. And so, that is obviously not necessarily within the realm of ULI specifically, but it is something that our city is definitely going to have to 
grapple with. And I know it was mentioned in the conversation with the mayor yesterday, and there's a lot of a lot of factors influencing our wages, but it is something that we as a country and as a city have to really take very seriously because it is it is just, as you just said, going to become a bigger and bigger issue as costs and various elements of your daily life continue to increase. I drove by a McDonald's um, the other day here in Memphis that had a sign outside that said hiring premium wages, 10 to $12 an hour. And the fact that we think that that's a premium wage is heartbreaking. Um, that, that, that is not a premium wage. It's not even close. Um, and I mean, that's a, a huge problem for us. So last question, does, it seems to me that this message needs to be more broadcast to the whole community, the need for our, for Memphis to develop more equitably, especially as we're seeing, you know, new developments coming in, real estate prices going up. How do, how does the message permeate beyond the real estate industry or just people that we all know? Um, how does that happen? Well, I think that people, and I, again, I'm just kind of going back to the housing summit, it was um, hit on a couple of times yesterday, but having an equitably developed city and having people in, in that live in environments that we all want to live in just makes our city greater. And I think that just re- helping people understand how it directly correlates to their lives, because it's very easy to kind of, as we just acknowledged, like not go into some of these neighborhoods and really understand what's happening because you have your routines, you go to where you go, and it doesn't necessarily cross paths with some of these areas. But at the end of the day, there's so our city could be so much greater if our if everyone is in a safe quality neighborhood and environment and our you know it impacts our education systems, it impacts healthcare, it impacts everything. And so having that environment for all of our citizens only makes our city greater. And getting that message out is difficult, but I think that um, it's slowly getting out there and people are they're starting to understand the direct um, implications in their lives as well. I agree. Well, that's a great note to end on. We want everyone to be having these conversations. I do anyway. I know you do as well. So thank you so much for joining me on Memphis Metropolis. I've been talking to Alex Willis from Comcap Partners and the Board of Urban Land Institute and Adam Quiston-Holtzclaw from Urban Land Institute. So thank you guys for being on. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Emily. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everyone. For this part of the show, I'm here with Ray Brown, who's an urban designer and one of our regular commentators. So welcome back, Ray. Thank you, Emily. Good to be back. So earlier in the show, we had Anna Hautzclaw from Urban Land Institute and Alex Willis, who's with Comcap Partners, and but on the board of Urban Land Institute, talking about a recent equitable development challenge that ULI had kind of in response to, you know, the moment we're in 
And I participated in some of that kind of a series of group discussions, learnings over a period of weeks, culminating in some work around, I do feel like there's concerns, you know, we've got a lot of history of inequitable development here, partly because of urban sprawl, partly because of things like redlining, the legacy of which that continues on today. And but we want to get to a different place at a time when real estate is kind of hot here right now. Housing prices are going up. We've got investors coming in from around the country buying up property. We're getting to the point where things are becoming less affordable. So sort of with that as a backdrop, I guess, what do you see as the two-part question? What do you see as the real estate industry's role in you know building building a city we all can afford, and then the planning profession, which are not one and the same, although there's a lot of overlap between the two. I think that you cannot, uh, in this, this equation, it's really, there's a third leg to the stool, and the third leg is finance. It's how properties are funded and financed, both in terms of what kind of lending the builder can receive for a property and also what kind of mortgage a, pr- a prospective homeowner can receive. Uh, and that issue is almost bigger than any other with regard to affordable housing in Memphis. Uh, I'll give you an example. There's an, a developer that I know who uh, is specializes in affordable housing for sale or rent. And he, he's local. He's well-known. He does good work. He is not a predator by any stretch of the imagination. He has built homes in some difficult neighborhoods. And he finds that by the time he's finished with the house that he's built, he cannot get, uh, he may have gotten a construction loan for the cost of the house. But at the end of the day, when he has to get a mortgage or uh, has to get an appraisal, to, in order to get a, an end mortgage on the house, he can't get the house appraised for what it cost him to build. Uh, so that takes away any incentive for him to do his work. Uh, it's the, the appraisals, of course, are based on comparable sales prices for houses in the vicinity. And if you're in Orange Mound and houses sell for... 10, 15, $20,000 in some cases, it's difficult to build a, even a small house for less than $100,000, and you can't get a mortgage on a house like that. And then, of course, you have to have someone who's got the sufficient income and stability to qualify to take that mortgage and own that home. So it's this circular problem that has a lot to do with the the condition of our neighborhoods that have allowed, been allowed to deteriorate over time, that have suffered from disinvestment over time, and that continue to suffer from a modern-day version of redlining that perhaps isn't written down or shown on a map, but is every bit as pernicious when it comes to trying to fin- finance a, a property. Well, could the real estate industry be involved in encouraging the public sector and the financial institutions to provide more 
you know, subsidy in the case of the public sector or lower cost financing in the case of banks? Yeah, I think I think it's absolutely necessary. Uh, obviously, government can't do it all. Uh, local government certainly can't do it all. We're especially nowadays, uh, given COVID, where the tax base has has been shrinking, and so it's difficult for government to even, uh, as the mayor says, be brilliant at the basics, let alone beyond that. The the dollars we do get from various sources to support that are just uh, a pittance compared to what is needed in terms of not only how many affordable housing units we need, but also how many units there are that need to be rehabbed and redeveloped. I just, it's hard for me to imagine a day when we really have enough financial support wrapping my mind around. Well, part of it, is part of it is that we as a community um, are only just now beginning to make a strong commitment to affordability. And we as a nation have no such commitment and have not had for some time. But in my view, were we to have an administration in Washington that put an emphasis on city building and an emphasis on uh, rebuilding our cities through infrastructure improvements and job creation that comes with them uh, and neighborhood improvements and job creation that comes with them, then we'd be not only solving the problem of building neighborhoods, we'd be creating a customer base to take on uh, increased mortgages or higher rents. It's, it's a problem that is bigger than developers and uh, and what we have here on the local scene. Now, that said, I don't expect any of that to happen any, anytime soon. So looking at it again through the small lens, um, I, I, do, I do think that there's an opportunity for um, organizations like Comcap Partners to who have access to capital specifically for the purpose of creating affordability that could be and should be strengthened uh, through uh, assistance from other local sources. Again, I go back to philanthropy because that's where the money is. So on a related subject, you know, part of the discussion is the need to make the real estate industry, local real estate industry and the planning world more diverse and inclusive better reflective of our community. And, you know, they've got, ULI certainly has, you know, emerging developer programs to help that. Any, do you have any thoughts about that piece of the puzzle? Oh, sure. Um, right now, in fact, there is a, a request for proposal out for attractive land, not attractive land, but a, a series of lots north of Poplar Avenue and south of I-40, just near uh, the uh, Le Bonheur Hospital, uh, where the Memphis Medical District Collaborative has been working for years to create a more stable neighborhood in the vicinity of the hospital. And those lots are being, uh, that, that RFP is targeted specifically to small developers to uh, allow them to exercise what they have learned in some of the emerging developer workshops. 
That to me makes a lot of sense because I don't think we're going to solve this problem uh, with one house on one block and another house at some distance on another block and a third house at some distance on another block. I think we have to look at it as transforming a neighborhood a street at a time or a block at a time and looking at larger chunks of of land and how we can create enough momentum on a larger scale development to make it really worthwhile and make it uh, influence what goes on around it, not just in terms of the appearance or the way it works from a planning standpoint, but also what it does to raise the, the comparable values of houses surrounding an area. So you're talking about something that could be sort of a win-win in the extent that it could impact the neighborhood and the areas surrounding it, but at the same time, build the capacity of emerging developers that could then in turn go on, do bigger projects and have a bigger, play a bigger role in the industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we're, it's a way to grow talent. It's a way to grow the local economy, and it's a way to, frankly, to uh, for individuals to begin to build wealth uh, in in a business setting of their with a with a company and entrepreneurship of their own. I don't see where there's a downside to that. So, Ray, I want to change the subject completely. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Ray Brown, who's an urban designer and one of our regular commentators. So, Ray, I want to talk about the Unified Development Code now. And so for anyone listening, we're getting into the weeds. So just... Hang on tight. So the Unified Development Code falls into a category that I have called boring but important. And because it has a tremendous amount of influence on how our city develops. So can you, in a nutshell, explain what the Unified Development Code is and why it's important. And hopefully I won't have to ring my jargon bell, <laughs> but I will if I have to. <laughs> because one of the things I like about you, I may have mentioned this earlier, is I consider you to be a good explainer. And that's a that's a good quality, residential upstairs. You know, the grocer lived downstairs, not on main streets, on, you know, residential streets. You see them, a number of them around Midtown. And... I don't know about now, but until recently, like that was against the law. Like you couldn't do that anymore for the reasons you described. Is that right? Yes, that is right. And in fact, in many cases, it's still the case that it's an illegal use. However, the UDC has um, managed to reduce the number of places where that's now illegal. So it opens up possibilities for the corner store to come back, which is a good thing in many neighborhoods. In many neighborhoods, it's not only the only store, but in other neighborhoods, at least you want to be able to walk someplace and get a quart of milk when you need one. Uh, but but the but yeah, that, that does open up possibilities for that kind of mixed use. 
uh, a building that contains both commercial and residential. And it used to be very common in cities to have ground floor commercial with apartments above. We zoned all of that out. Now we're zoning it back in. And I think the city is better for it. So having said that, the the city completely overhauled its code about 10 years ago, and the Unified Development Code was adopted. And periodically, maybe once a year or so, the you know, the Office of Planning and Development at the city and county put forward some amendments. As you can imagine, it's really a giant rule book, and from time to time, it needs to be tweaked. There's a public process for people to say yay or nay on those amendments, but it's extremely technical, and that's actually going on right now. Uh, the the city and county are proposing some amendments to the Unified Development Code that'll be approved at some point by one of the land use governing bodies, and then we'll go to city council. So, but there's a couple of things you and I were talking, and there's a couple of things in that that are a little worrisome that people might want to pay attention to and let their elected officials know that they weren't that maybe those things ought to be rethought. So can you just uh, uh, delineate those ones that we were talking about that are, are potentially concerning? Sure, um, I can. And I, th- let, me, let me start that by saying that um, having an opportunity for people to comment and influence public policy in their neighborhoods and even for that matter, in an area like downtown, is terribly important if we're going to have uh, a representative city where it's where the people have a voice and a, a strong voice. Um, the UDC was written by lawyers in a very lawyerly way, and it's very difficult for uh, anybody, including me, to understand uh, a lot of the provisions in it. What I do know is that There are provisions in this latest set of amendments that reduce the opportunity for citizens to have influence over the decisions that are made. You mentioned the governing bodies, and let me just touch on that for a minute. There are two major governing bodies that deal with land use and zoning. One of them is the Board of Appeals, and the other is the Land Use Control Board. Board of Adjustment. Board of Adjustment, excuse me. I'm thinking of the city that I used to live in 25 years ago. The Board of Adjustment. Uh, And the Board of Adjustment essentially uh, grants uh, exemptions to the UDC, to to the rules contained in the UDC. The Land Use Control Board looks at things a little bit differently with respect to how uh, how the overall planning of the city should influence land use and changes. The, the difference between those two bodies, though, is very striking. The Board of Adjustments only appeal. If, if, if the neighbors go to the Board of Adjustment and they say, we don't want that, the Board of Adjustment disagrees and, and puts it into place anyway, the only appeal that the neighbors have is through the court system which means hiring a lawyer and going through a very expensive and lengthy process, which may or may not result in a resolution in their favor. 
Well, and most neighborhoods could not afford that. Could not afford it, and take to to spend that kind of time and money is just not, especially in some of our neighborhoods, just impossible. The Land Use Control Board, on the other hand, any appeal to the decision of the Land Use Control Board it goes to city council, and where neighbors can show up, and the councilmen and women listen to their uh, to their appeal, and in many cases overturn the decision of the land use control board if it is in the interest of the neighborhood to do so. So the problem is that over the years, the uh, UDC has been amended to put more decision-making in the hands of the Board of Adjustment and less in the hands of the Land Use Control Board, which means that it reduces the amount of opportunity for neighbors to have an effect on, uh, to have to, to, to have a, an effect on public policy. And that's not a good thing. So what you're saying is more and more cases, more and more decisions are moving in the direction where people have less say and less right of appeal on decisions they're not happy with. That's right. That's exactly right. Not only less right of appeal, but they have even less opportunity to be notified that a decision is in the works uh, because the rules of those two bodies are different about notifying people who might be affected by the decision. So some of these proposed changes that that are uh, in play now for Unified Development Code would move some of those decisions from Land Use Control Board to Board of Adjustment, where there's really less opportunity for public participation. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. And what about the um, and what about the the other proposed change we talked about? the non-conforming lots and tracks. See if you can put that into plain language. <laughs> well, I'm sure that many of your listeners have been aware in the past of what's called tall, skinny houses. Specifically, there were some built in Cooper Young that uh, were very narrow uh, and had three stories and garages out in the front of the building and they're, um, in, in my view as a designer, they're unsightly, uh, and they certainly don't fit with the character of the neighborhood uh, so that surrounds them. If you built them out somewhere where there was very little around them or what was around them was, was of varying sizes and shapes and design, that might be one thing. But in a neighborhood like Cooper Young or Midtown, they simply don't fit. They were built on lots that were very narrow, 25 feet. That's very helpful. So I'm going to post some information about these proposed changes in the show notes for this edition of Memphis Metropolis. If any if any listeners are interested in learning more or sending email to elected officials or to the staff, there'll be a little more information in there about that. So, Ray, just final question. Um, we recently learned that Jennifer Oswalt is leaving Downtown Memphis Commission to take a job in East Tennessee, and you are going to be the interim head 
of Downtown Memphis Commission, which I'm thrilled about. You've been involved with that organization for many years. So we don't have a lot of time, but congratulations on that. And just tell us a couple things that you're particularly excited about for this time-limited tenure. <laughs> well, thank you for your good wishes and, uh, and good words. Uh, I'm sorry that Jennifer is leaving, as are many people who have worked with her and understand what she has brought to the city. Uh, I understand that this is an opportunity that she couldn't pass up, and so I wish her well in her new job. And um, I'm honored and gratified to be able to step in as interim president uh, when when Jennifer leaves around the first of the year. Uh, we will basically just try to keep the ship steered in the right direction that she has already put us on. Um, there's some big stuff coming up, as everybody knows. The, the union, uh, I guess it's called the Walk-On Union now, the Lowe's Hotel Project, uh, the new parking mobility uh, center that was just announced. Uh, so all of that's going to need to uh, be continued and I hope to be able to carry on and uh, bring some of those near into or near fruition. And I've been talking to Ray Brown, who's an urban designer and the soon-to-be interim executive director of Downtown Memphis Commission. So thanks, Ray, and I'll see you next time. Thank you, Emily. Take care. Well, that sounds great. I look forward to hearing all about that. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. The show airs every Monday at 1, so I hope you'll check back next week. And stay tuned for Memphis Underground, coming up next.